Today we are continuing our series of special episodes talking to authors and academics who write about Star Wars. So if you're curious about the big ideas behind Star Wars, you're in the right place. You're listening to the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. And welcome back to the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host again for today, Johnny Maynard, and I am joined by two very special guests, uh, the editors of new book, Star Wars Essays Exploring a Galaxy Far, Far Away. So let's do some introductions. First up, we have Amy H. Sturgis. Hi, Amy. Hi there. Amy, can you tell everybody listening a little bit about yourself? Yes, definitely. So I have a PhD from Vanderbilt University, and I teach undergraduates at Lenore Rhine University and graduates at Signum University. And my field is intellectual history, which is the history of ideas. So I have spent a good amount of my career, so that's a couple of decades at this point, uh, looking at particularly the intellectual history of speculative fiction and specifically even more there uh, science fiction because science fiction is the genre where the ideas are the heroes so that makes good sense if you're wanting to study the history of ideas and of course science fiction does a great job of both mirroring the concerns and the values and the anxieties of any given time but it also provides that push toward the hopes for progress for something different for change so it's a great place to to you know be (laughs) uh, looking at the history of ideas and so i've had the really good fortune to spend a lot of time with the kinds of texts that have in effect raised me since i was a little uh, including star trek and star wars and works like that. So I do uh, teach classes uh, on the history of science fiction, on related genres like the gothic and the detective story. Mm-hmm. And then I also teach courses on specifically, say, Star Wars. I've taught yeah. courses on Star Wars since 2015, every year and some years, every semester, including wow. summers. I'm always so jealous when I hear about folk who get to go to a class and talk about Star Wars for credit, you know, (laughs) and and it's amazing. You know, people come motivated and excited and ready Mm. to, to dive into things and also to sort of build bridges with other people. A lot of the students uh, that I get undergraduate classes and graduate classes, um, for example, for Star Wars, I I teach both. And a lot of them are already fans, but then some of them know people, love people who are fans. And so the whole reason they sign up for that particular course is my dad loves it. My girlfriend loves it. Everybody on my hall talks about it and I want to, to understand what they're, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a really neat thing to see how much that's about connection between people. Absolutely. Star Wars bringing people together and also, I guess, bring, bringing them into your classroom to help them understand more about it as well. Exactly. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. 
so, so yeah, you, you've managed to marry up your um, your sort of personal love for some of this stuff with a, an actual career, um, which is wonderful. Yeah, that's right. And my other little side bit, I, I um, contribute the looking back on genre history segment for the last fifteen years to the Starship Sofa podcast. So if anyone's interested in checking out Starship Sofa, I talk a lot about speculative fiction in general, science fiction, fantasy, gothic, uh, a lot of topics uh, there, just picking each time a little a little bit of, of genre history and looking at it in depth. So that's been lovely. Well, you've got a new subscriber in me today. Um, I'll be <laughs> I'll be I'll be signing up after we finished recording. Um, and of course, Amy, we're not alone. We're, we're joined by um, Emily, who I know that you know very well. Emily Strand, hi, how are you doing? Hello, hello there. That's my standard line. Hello there. Uh, I yeah, am I it's, great. It, it's obligatory that someone on a Star Wars podcast introduces themselves with a bit of a hello there. With the rousing hello there, yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, I am so excited to be here and to talk to you on a podcast totally dedicated to mm. Star Wars books. This is just great, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and I am one of these people who is in Amy Sturgis's classrooms, especially Amazing. in her online teaching. I know I'm, I'm just one of those randos who shows up uh, on the roster. <laughs> and I uh, live in Ohio. I, um, I have a master's degree in theology, um, and I have a background working in college campus ministry, especially uh, sacramental ministry with students, yeah. um, liturgy coordination, liturgy preparation. Um, and, uh, but I also, um, you know, it was a real toss up for me in undergrad, whether I was to study literature or religion. I started in literature and then I shifted to religion. I always say the Lord got a hold of me and I shifted <laughs> to, <laughs> I shifted to religion. Um, and I, um, now teach, I, I, I taught for the university of Dayton for 11 years, but, um, where I also got my master's degree, but then here, uh, we've moved to central Ohio and, and here I teach for a local nursing college, which seems really random, but they needed somebody to teach, uh, world religions with an eye toward cultural competence. Oh, and wow. so that's what I do. Yeah. And, and then now I teach also general courses in cultural competence yeah. as well. So, um, I spend a lot of time uh, helping students, you know, know how to care for all kinds of patients and helping broaden yeah. their perspectives about about um, people and their worldview. Um, and that's that's been really um, I, I actually I'm, my area is Catholicism, but, you know, I've had to learn. I've had to catch up and I've had a yeah. lot of wonderful mentors in that. And it's actually really broadened my own interest in um, in literature and in fiction, especially Star Wars, but in in. Um, about let's see 2002 probably 2003 i started reading harry potter mm -hmm. um i was never really a speculative fiction person um i read the classics and things like that um but i started reading harry potter and then um really got into the world of speculative fiction and um ended up in by 2015 i was going huh you know those star wars movies they're everywhere Everybody's always talking about them. I don't really get the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then I saw Signum University was offering a, a new course called The Force of Star Wars with Amy H. Sturgis, who I'd already taken classes with and just loved her approach yeah. to, to teaching and the subject. And um, 
So I signed up thinking, I audited thinking, well, you know, I don't, I'm kind of a nonviolent person. I don't really like things with wars in the title. So I think maybe I'll just <laughs> audit this. I'm not really sure I'm going to like Star Wars that much. And, um, and then Amy, I, I blame her entirely. She turned me into a monster um, <laughs> in the best way, in the best way. So uh, yeah, I fell head, headlong, uh, hook, line and sinker into Star Wars. Um, I, it just, it had a great presentation in Amy Sturgis and um, I had already published a few things, um, a few pieces of um, uh, literary criticism on Harry Potter. And I was just starting to get into podcasting on those topics. Um, And now I get to work with Amy on publishing Star Wars and Star Trek books, which is a lot of fun. So it's, it's been a it's been a fun, and I also am a co-host of the podcast Potterversity, which is a Potter Studies podcast. So to plug uh, yes, I know. Well. You, yeah, you, you mentioned that when we when we first got in touch, and um, I, I think I mentioned in in reply that I'm long overdue my Potter reread. Um, mm. It's been a very long time, um, so to kind, of, to kind of, and I don't know when I'll squeeze that in because my TBR pile is massive. <laughs> I say pile; it's piles plural. Um, yeah. But uh, in the meantime, I've been listening to Potterversity and kind of getting my a, a little hit of um, of, of the Potterverse. Good, uh, good. Just, just, just to kind of maybe maybe that reread will kind of creep up the list um, mm-hmm. with every episode that I listen to. Um, well, and if you don't have time for that, just watch Star Wars Rebels because Ezra Bridger is really the Harry Potter of Star Wars, as I always like to say. So I feel like there, there's a paper in there somewhere. I just have to I got to sit down with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Amy's telling you to write it. <laughs> I, know. I well, you know, I was uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I, yeah. it's it's there. It's there. We're going to we're going to do yeah. that yeah. someday. Well, something um that, that struck me as I was reading um the the introduction to the new book um was this 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 word that I wasn't familiar with, but I guess it made sense to me immediately straight away was is the word akafan. Um, you know, which I, I guess I take to be a portmanteau of academic and fan. Um, but but can, can you tell folks listening, one of you maybe tell the folks listening where that comes from? Because it, it, it was, I had no idea it was a thing, <laughs> you know? Um, who wants to take that one? I'll take that one. You're right. That, that means an academic who identifies as both a scholar and as a fan of whatever it is that they study. And if you want to go back and figure out the lineage of that, uh, where that came from, it gained widespread traction when Matt Hills used it in his book, Fan Cultures, which came out in 2002, but it had already been around in the culture for some time. It dates back to the explosion of fandom studies and participatory culture studies. Uh, which goes back to the 1990s, back when I was a a baby academic myself, Mm -hmm. uh, people like Patricia Gillikin founded Akafen L, which was an academic group uh, for the study of fandom, and scholar Henry Jenkins, he wrote a pioneering academic study called Textual Poachers, Television Fans and Participatory Culture, had a huge impact on me. He was one of the moderators of self-identified ACAFAN discussions back there in the 90s. And I think 
One of the big takeaways from the term is that an akafan not only takes the source text seriously as worthy of study in their own right. So in that in the Star Wars context, that would be the films, the series, the yeah. novels and comics and games, but also takes seriously transformative works. So, you know, interactive fan experiences, fan fiction, fan art, fan film, costuming, gaming. Yeah. And sees the fan really as a participant in the franchise's history. So, in short, you know, the Akafan doesn't view what's popular as beneath notice just because it's popular and doesn't yeah. view the fan as this other over here as, you know, something strange to be studied as, as uh, you know, weird, aberrant behavior. Actually, we say, hey, you know, this resonates with us a lot and clearly it resonates with a whole lot of other people so how and why and what does it mean yeah yeah it's interesting that uh, you you noted there that some of this stuff goes back to sort of the 1990s mm -hmm. i remember as um an undergraduate in the 1990s that, that's how far back i go um no, I, I, I came to do my dissertation. I, I did comparative religion along with international politics. Politics and religion, those two not very spicy and controversial topics when, when combined. Um, but I decided, I decided to do my diss um, on the persistence of religious iconography in, in 20th century cinema, in, 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 the, in the late 20th century. And I think at the time, a lot of the folk in the divinity department at my university, they'd never really... I guess it hadn't quite reached those guys that popular cultural texts were something that you could apply their lens to. You know, it was still kind of coming through to certain, to, at least to that discipline at that university. It was like, oh, this is an interesting thing we've never thought of before. Yeah. But I guess now it's very, you know, it's much more common, I guess, for folk in, in, a, in a variety of disciplines to, to lift up popular texts mm -hmm. and to kind of look yeah. at them through their particular prism, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, um, scholars like Merce Eliade, I think that's how you pronounce his name. It, even in the fifties, we're talking about how these religious instincts are deeply rooted human instincts. Um, or, or I should maybe say the instinct for the transcendent, right? Not necessarily for religion, but for transcendent experience, you know, are deeply rooted in humanity and, and they're not, going away with the breakdown of religious institutions. They're just being sort of reapplied, you know, and he said, you know, one of the places they're going to be applied is into the realm of popular culture, into the realm of popular yeah. entertainment. So books, you know, he, he talked a lot about books back then, but also film, you know, you can see that we get these experiences of awe and experiences of transcendence in, in the film, you know, setting, going to the cinema, right? And yeah. so, and so it, it is interesting that, like you said, the institute, academic institutions and, you know, those making them go, it's taken us a long time to figure out how important pop culture is as a seat of, of insight, you know, into our yeah. own humanity and our own human instincts. And, and, and yeah, and I think it's really just an honest thing to be able to say that I'm, you know, if you're, if you're a scholar of the American revolution and you just can't stand the American revolution, like, I, I don't know that you should be a scholar of that, you know? So, I mean, it's yeah. just an honest thing to say, mm -hmm. I'm also a fan of this. I'm coming to this as a fan. And sometimes I even think that that gives us an opportunity 
to be more careful in our analyses. You know, um, mm. it's not my instinct to lash out at a new show that maybe the first couple episodes dropped and I wasn't all that impressed. It's not my instinct to lash out at that. I'm a fan, so I'm going to give it time to unspool, right? Yeah. And I'm going give, to give it time to, you know, show me, t time to wow me, right? Um, and uh, so I think that, I think that helps um, it, rather than hinders my own academic approach. Yeah. Have either of you ever come across, um, I, I guess, an academic take on Star Wars that has surprised you that, oh, I've never thought about looking at it through this lens, be it at a conference, somebody delivers a paper or a proposal comes across your desk for, for a paper. Is, is, is there anything that has sort of taken you by surprise and as a, as a very new approach or a discipline that you hadn't considered looking at Star Wars through before? Definitely. Um, I, in fact, I think that's probably the mark of a good piece that it in some way it should at some point make you go, huh, huh, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I, like, I don't know, I'm so I heard a paper a couple of years ago at a conference um, that talked about um, he went through portrayals of blindness in Star Wars and talked about and talked about some ancient uh classical literature and compared it to that mm. and to show that disability is not necessarily a weakness in star wars and he used the example of course of kanan jarrus um yeah. as a character and who's absolutely one of my favorite characters in star wars and um and it was really very i, I mean i knew i knew what he was saying i could resonate with what he was saying because i am a fan of kanan you know and i've watched his yeah. story very carefully but the way he unpacked the argument that he was making really opened my eyes to other areas of Star Wars in which, you know, disability is not a weakness, but rather can be even a strength, you know. So that's yeah. that's just an example. Amy, I'm sure you have a million examples. Yes, it happens every semester. <laughs> my students, <laughs> Fantastic. My students do these research projects and the way, the way you teach the class, it's, it's multidisciplinary and then each student is is sort of a co-creator of the class by doing a semester-long research project. And so they're constantly reporting back on their project as it unfolds throughout the semester. And then in the end, they're teaching us about the expertise that they have. And it, they're coming from all kinds of different majors and interests. So I'm, I'm continu continually um, amazed by um, uh, a student who who knows a lot about Formula One racing, for example, did a whole project on the idea of racing and the idea of, of speed and he tied it into um, George Lucas's early experience with cars and with racing himself and his mm -hmm. near-death experience with a terrible crash yeah. and then car culture in American graffiti before Star Wars mm -hmm. even came around and then how really important all of the racing scenes in different iterations of Star Wars, even after Lucas, you know, was involved and it was yeah. the next, the next generations of Star Wars storytellers who were taking their cues from from Lucas, as this repeated theme that has a whole lot of meaning, and then what it means to see that through the eyes of what Formula One means, knowing that Lucas is also a Formula One fan, and I had no idea of any of this stuff, you know, I, I know wheels go round, and that's about. <laughs> 
<laughs> in terms of, of cars and racing and such. But um, the way he was able to connect the dots there yeah. to really big issues, you know, things about about mortality and about power and about self-ownership and all kinds of, of really wonderful. So it happens on a semesterly basis. Yeah. And I, that's one of the... One of the beautiful things I find as someone who just reads some of this, you know, it's, 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 I guess it's your day to day, but I'm, I'm sort of just picking up the odd academic book or essay and sort of reading it as a reader. Um, my, my academic days are long gone. Um, but you're sort of the Star Wars knowledge you build up as a fan then sort of acts as a key to help you unlock these other ways of looking at the world, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you didn't know much about racing in Formula One before. Now you know, <laughs> you know exactly because it's kind of because when it's plugged into sort of to Star Wars and you're seeing it through your a Star Wars lens, you're then seeing it through this other lens as well. And you're, you know, and I love that about this book of essays in particular and sort of other academic takes on Star Wars as well that I've read. That it unpacks a new way of looking at the world for you, which is just right. fascinating. And, and it, so you don't have to be an academic to get stuff out of this stuff. You know, no. I can sit here and read it and it is showing me new ways of looking at not only Star Wars, but just life in general. You're learning new stuff. Right. You know? Because I think the best analyses are rooted in very careful observation of the text. Mm -hmm. And the fans are the ones doing the closest observations, you know, and sure, sometimes we see what we want to see. And we have, you know, I feel like we have communities that that kind of keep us in check and help us to see past some of our biases. But, but, you know, I mean, what we're observing, you know, on, on the line level, you know, it, 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 it really wakes up a, a point of view on it, you know, that says, um, I, I just, I absolutely love, I love all the essays, of course, but Eloise Thompson Tremblay's essay on mothers in Star Wars. It's so great. I mean, just to have such a big chunk of a chapter devoted to Shmi Skywalker. It's like, yes, yes. someone has been needing Absol to do this forever. But, but for her to notice that, you know, not only does Aunt, you know, people like to blame, oh, he had this too close relationship with his mother. And that was what, part of why he fell to the dark side. He was with his mother too long. It's like, wow, here's the thing, though. What she notices is that he doesn't even follow her advice. You know, she tells him, turn around, go with this man and don't look back. And he can't do it. He cannot do it. And if he would have, things would have been different, right? And But it's that yeah. careful observation of what's in the text that drives her analysis. And that's why it's so good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned there about sort of fan communities sort of sometimes keeping us in check. And uh, um, But I want to talk about your fan journeys as well. Um, but yeah, so, so what about you guys? Where did your Star Wars journeys start. Amy, what about you first? It started in 1977. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an original uh, first generation Star Wars fan. So I was a fan of Star Trek from the first time I can remember. I'm pretty sure there was a time when I thought that the word television meant Star Trek because I was watching reruns of the original series and then first run episodes of the animated series mm -hmm. sort of side by oh, side wow. and so that was fantastic it gave me very early on 
a love of this kind of storytelling. And so I could leverage that when it came 1977 and everyone was talking about this, this amazing space movie uh, to, to convince my parents that I was grown up enough to get to go and mm -hmm. see. So they ultimately didn't take me once, they took me six times. And so I started school then uh, it, with Leia buns in my hair. So I was mm -hmm. an immediately Fantastic. fan, immediately a fan. Um, the first book I wrote was filling out every single page of a spiral notebook, Empire Strikes Back. I bought, uh, my parents bought for me at, at Target. Um, and I said, I'm going to write every single page on this. And that was so, so S Star Wars with, was with me from the beginning. And mm -hmm. Shout out to my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had a wonderful science fiction comics bookstore called Starbase 21. And they also sponsored an annual con uh, convention called uh, Trek Expo. And it had a lot of Star Trek content, but always had a lot of Star Wars content too. Mm -hmm. And so I discovered going to a science fiction convention early and seeing costuming and seeing speakers, seeing the actors there, but also learning about fan culture. I discovered in my teens fanzines and realized that people were writing stories and continuing stories and taking things in different directions. And I know some fans talk about the dark times, you know, before the prequels came out when there seemed to be yeah. this, this, but I didn't experience that in part because I had discovered conventions and fanzines and such. And it, it sort of blurred the line for me, whether it was fan creation or official creation, it was all Star Wars. And so I feel yeah. fortunate um, to have seen how, you know, the interaction in the community built around that took shape. And uh, that naturally led to later on then sort of balancing in my own work, going to academic conferences and also giving sort of quasi academic talks at science fiction conventions, because I could see that there's a lot of crossover interest there as, as we've yeah. already talked about, you know, um, uh, well-informed fans and academics are actually having a lot of the same conversations. And so that's, you know, very fortunate for me. And so I was a fan through the whole thing, got to live through that exciting time when uh, fan fiction and fan art and such uh, made the leap to the internet. And mm -hmm. when the Phantom Menace came out, everything went, you know, all the, the communities moved online in a, in a big way, a way that Lucasfilm couldn't stop. <laughs> with the yeah, fan yeah. You, you'll remember the days when, if, if you wanted to watch a five-minute-long fan film, you had to download it for, from three different links that, that each took half an hour <laughs> to download. To watch Troops or to watch Hardware. Tro uh, troops, exactly. <laughs> Love exactly, Troops. That's exactly Love troops. the one I was thinking of. Yeah. You know? And I didn't, you know, And at the time, I didn't even get the cultural reference because we didn't have cops here. That oh, wasn't a show. Right. You know, so right. I was just like, the, the, why And it's these, still funny. It, it, it was still funny. It was still, you know, poor Owen and Baru. But um, yeah, yeah. For, for those who listening who maybe not be aware of Troops, I'm sure it's out there on YouTube or elsewhere these days. Uh, and at the click of a button, it will be streaming for you. Uh, and, when, and when you're having that experience, think of us who are old enough to have had to wait for about half an hour to watch half of it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, feel our pain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
so anyway, I, it, I've, I've already mentioned it. It was a very natural thing then to take my interest in the history of ideas and apply it there. And I'm also interested in the, the history of ideas about history. And one of the things that I found very useful in thinking about that is the way that Star Trek and Star Wars give us very different views of how history works. And so, and, and both are deeply infused with historical inspirations and historical references. And so I've been able to kind of go back and forth between the two of those, like I did when I was six and, uh, and, and see how those ideas were, were bouncing off of each other. And that's also led me, I've, I've published a bit on fandom studies as well. I'm particularly interested in fan fiction. And I've also published on science fiction creators who got their start in fan fiction. Lois McMaster Bujold is one of my favorite living science fiction authors, and she got her start writing fan fiction. And she's written a lot about reader response and how the story is co-created between the person who's creating the story and the person who reads it and brings their own context to it. And so it's a partnership between the storyteller and the story hearer or viewer or, you know, and, and what she has written about in her own understanding of what storytelling means is something we're seeing today with Star Wars fans now becoming the Star Wars writers and directors yeah. and actors and such. And so it's, it's very interesting to me all the way around. So I've been very fortunate to get to have a kind of uh, clear path there from six-year-old me to much older me. Uh, all the way through. 1977 the year. <laughs> Fantastic. Emily, what about you? Um, I, I'm guessing from what you said earlier, maybe you weren't as au fait with the world of Star Wars before you waded into looking at Star Wars through an academic lens. Right, right. Um, all of these things that Amy is saying about the longevity of her relationship with these properties <clears throat> makes Amy a wonderful, wonderful tour guide. Um, I've taken the the um, the Star Wars course with her twice now, I think, and I've taken the. I actually went back and took it for credit because I figured I should. Um, and then <laughs> uh, also a Star Trek course. So she she is a wonderful tour guide, and and it's funny because I can kind of fool people because I feel like I have this great perspective from Amy, and and not just Amy, but the things that Amy has given us to to read and to investigate um, having to do with the, his, the books that she selected for her syllabus. And, um, you know, these give me a really great long picture. I'm a big picture person anyway, so I love the long, the long view of these uh, properties and the behind the scenes, as well as the sort of diegetic, you know, um, arcs that they go through. And uh, so I often fool people. They're like, yeah, you know, so where did you see the original Star Wars movie? I was like, well, I one so I didn't <laughs> um also I didn't see any of them except maybe a trip to see the Phantom Menace with a bunch of people from college that I I was not interested in the movie I was just there for the party and you know <laughs> um but besides that I didn't really get into Star, Star Wars until 2015 and and I didn't when I took the signed up for the course I did not know new movies were coming out <laughs> I had no idea I was just <laughs> like okay I'm long for this ride you know um classic youngest child so uh so yeah but I'll tell you so that's how I became interested in being part of that conversation but I'll tell you when I became a fan was um 
first of all, I, I started watching the f- very first film in preparation for the course. Mm-hmm. And we had to turn it off halfway. We're not, we don't watch whole movies at our house. We're very, we're kind of more TV scale watchers. Mm-hmm. So we, we turned it off after about half of it. And I remember getting up from the couch and saying to my husband, I like that Ben Kenobi. I really like that Ben Kenobi. I want, I want a little <laughs> bit more of that Ben Kenobi, you know? And then, um, right. And then completing the, um, that trilogy and then moving on to the prequels. Not the prequels just blew my mind. I mean, I I just was so wrapped up in that story. Um, and not just the story of Anakin and his fall and his relationship with Obi-Wan, but rather the story of the fall of the Jedi and how fascinating mm-hmm. it was. And maybe that was even because I was in this post-9-11, you know, political milieu. I just feel like everything's been crazy since 9-11 like it's just like mm-hmm. 9-11 is the seam before which things were normal and now they're not and never going to be again and so I, I I've been deeply affected by this personally you know my my interests yeah. I was politically apathetic before that now I'm very politically aware and so all of that really resonated with me and I'll tell you that there are about three different moments in Star Wars that have me sobbing on a couch and the very first one was you were my brother Anakin you know, mm-hmm. and that scene on Mustafar. And because I knew something bad had to have happened to Anakin, something terrible yeah. to put him in that suit, but I didn't know it was Obi-Wan that had to do it. And, oh, really? and that just, just ripped me to pieces because of how invested I am. I feel, I feel a strong affinity yeah. with Obi-Wan Kenobi in terms of the, the way he teaches and his life choices and the way he thinks through things and just the kind of person he is. I just feel like that's the kind of person I am too. And so yeah. to see that just um, really, it's and that's such... when I became a fan that there's, yeah. there was no going back from that moment. Yeah. This is, this was my favorite from then on. It's such a powerful confrontation that, and you know, I, I, I can't, I guess I came to that movie having read many moons, prior the the original novelization of return of the jedi which dived in a little bit more you got a little bit more in that um book about what happened between obi-wan and anakin it's slightly different i think he gets tossed into a volcano or something but you you knew that it was obi-wan so for me the moment that where it really hit me was, was not at that point but actually as soon as it cuts and you see obi-wan at the top of the ramp that's the moment for yeah. me where even watching it now it's my, my heart still catches in my throat because i'm like from this point on you know where it goes right you know and, and even for me watching the movie for the first time that that was the okay here we go it's they're they're doing something that's faithful ish to what happened in that was alluded to in that novelization all those years ago and it's going to upset me you know and every time for me that's the moment where i just it catches me, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so, potent, so, so powerful. powerful. Right, mm-hmm. right. Because it it brings that political conflict down into the realm of the personal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they're not just fight. They're not fighting over how they hate each other. They're fighting over really when it comes down to it, politics. You know, political yeah. ideologies, warring political ideologies, and the things that we end up doing because of our political ideologies, and that just oh, just just really um, tore me up uh and and always will it's it's one of my favorite moments in star wars and i can't really watch it <laughs> i'm always like no no let's put on attack of the clones Je- he's yeah. got that jesus hair it's much lighter get a little action oh, adventure you know don't, detective don't, story don't start, 
Yeah, don't stop me on Obi-Wan on Attack of the Clones. I love the hair, but the beard continuity drives me insane. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I, and it's one of those weird things. I, I, I just, I genuinely, I saw it on the first viewing in the cinema. I was like, oh, from shot to shot to shot in a single scene, I was seeing that was pickups, that was principal photography, that was pickups, that was principal <laughs> photography. And it just, I don't understand for the life of me why why that strange beard that they have that they stuck on his face for the pickup shots it is a strange beard <laughs> it's awful i just can't yeah i can't and, um, and then and then we had a revival of it for for the uh obi-wan kenobi show and the scene where they're dueling the flashback scene where they're dueling yeah. and it's like the hair the beard <laughs> so great I mean, great in a bad. I mean, I'm sitting here in a Dexas yeah. Diner T-shirt. So what you know, this is yeah, a, yeah. this is a favorite of mine. This this film. <laughs> you you, you got to love a bit of Obi Wan and Dex. Um, did yeah. did you read the um, the Padawan book from last I year? I did. Yeah. I did. That's my, great, my Kirsten White. Of, yeah, nice little bit of Dex and Obi Wan love in there. That was lovely. Um, since we're talking about sort of our fandom, I, I know Emily that you are a bit of a cosplayer. Hmm. Yes. Uh, and you've been known to express your fan fandom in that way. I, I guess, is that something you've come into now in recent years, having sort of come into Star Wars? Or or, or were you dressing up as strange things beforehand? <laughs> um, well, actually, uh, so when my Harry Potter fandom really took off, you know, circa uh -huh. 2005 or so, 2006, um, definitely peaking when the seventh book came out, um, I, I did have a strong instinct. My husband and I had had a brand new house um, that was, you know, it was the first time we had lived in a house. Either of us had lived in a house in our adult lives um, since leaving our own homes. And uh, so we had this house and we were ready to kind of invite people over. And my instinct was to host these Harry Potter costume parties around Halloween every year. And they became somewhat famous. Um, we had, you know, there were like, you know, 50 to 100 people got the word about these parties and everybody had to dress up and I did not have to enforce that because everybody did. And, and at the mm -hmm. time I was working at a university, of course, the students were really interested in it. We were like, do we invite the students? Do we not? We were like, let's invite the students, you know, let's let them, we'll just police them, you know, and everything. And it actually was really, really good. So it was kind of a mix of faculty, staff and students and everybody was really celebrating Harry Potter. We had all kinds of themed food and all these things. So so, but the dress up was always a little bit of a last minute thing. I always wished I could have spent more time. I always went as the bass player in the band, the Weird Sisters. That was just my okay. thing. Like <laughs> maybe two out of three years, I was the bass player. And then I'm, I think I was one yeah. year, I was Madame Rose Marte, you know, so the hostess with the most. So, um, you know, so yeah, so I guess, I guess my, my cosplay starts, I, I, I just always felt on Halloween, like this is the day where other people want to dress up too. And so it's always been one of my favorite holidays for that. But um, then when I got so interested in Star Wars, you know, I mean, my, I would say my interest in my love of talking about Star Wars with very, these very observant fans, it kind of like outstripped my ability to connect with people simply online. You know, I have lots of online friends that I love to, to talk Star Wars with, but, um, you know, that's really limiting. And I was kind of like, you know, 
probably subconsciously searching for a more of a community, more of a local community of people that I could yeah. really connect with. And so I had read through the wonderful sources that Amy gave us uh, in the classes. I had read about the 501st. Um, and I knew their reputation for excellence and their um, origins as people who wanted to kind of, you know, um, transport themselves into the world through costuming um, and, and, and that, you know, that there's strength in numbers with that, right? So one, one yeah. guy in a stormtrooper kit is uh, a little bit of an oddity, but um, two guys in character interacting with people as stormtroopers is a whole lot of fun and draws a whole lot yeah. of brings a lot of joy to people um yeah. and so when i looked into it i i embarrassed to say i didn't realize that the 501st were just bad guys and i really wanted to do a jedi costume i was also learning to sew i love i've always loved garments mm -hmm. and i was learning to sew so i thought oh jedi that's a lot of straight lines there i'd probably be able to hand, handle one of those and so so I, as I looked into it, I realized that I had to join the Rebel Legion if I wanted to be a Jedi. Mm -hmm. So that was my my first um, move. And I did that. And my, my mother is a sewist as well. So she was kind of helping me. I have several friends in my life that, that helped me with these things. And I sew on my mother's vintage 1964 white sewing machine, which is oh, wow. a complete tank. Yeah. Um, can <laughs> sew through belt leather on that thing uh, with the right needle. And uh, so, so a Jedi, so the Jedi happened. I have a couple of Jedi with the Rebel Legion, but then this past May, um, I also joined the 501st. So mm -hmm. a group of us got together um, over the course of the spring and we did a group build, which is pretty common in the 501st, um, did a group build of Imperial officer uniforms. So I got in on that. It was mostly a sewing thing and they needed sewists. So I said, me, me, ooh, ooh. Um, because yeah. the Rebel Legion and 501st, they, we do a lot of events together. So it's, yeah. you know, you're in one group or the other group or you're in, m many people are in both groups. And yeah. there's a lot are, of- are your, Is your local Rebel Legion and 501st Garrison, are they kind of co-administered or are they separate entities essentially? They're not. Mine are basically co-run by the same folk. Well, and that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and and it and it could be they are administrated separately, but mm. the events are co-administrated. So the events we yeah. have a website that you unlock when you're a member of either group. Um, we have a couple other groups too. We have the Galaxy, a Galaxy United, which is an Ohio group, and then we have the Droid Builders. We have Mandalorian Mercs. So that's all very active in Ohio. Yeah. So um ohio is a big populous state very very populous state and so um so we have lots of events and so those events are all listed on the same website so anybody can sign anybody in any of the groups can sign up for those events so so it's similar um mm -hmm. but we so we got together and we made these officer uniforms together very difficult project um and i my costume was approved in may so now i'm a member of the 501st as well congratulations yeah, yeah. I, I i've still to get my first costume in either organization approved i kind of i went off on a tangent and sort of created my own original character uh from some fanfic that i've been writing as well so i've got so, so but i i ended up pouring all of my cosplay energies <laughs> into an oc that so i spent all of celebration uh people saying who are you i'm like well <laughs> <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I had I had little postcards to give out that had a little bit of art and sort of a short story, like a micro story. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, next next time I need to finish my Jedi Librarian. That that that's oh, kind of my I first. Have, that's gonna be my first. I have one of those. I do. I do. Yeah. It, it was a good start. Um, yeah. And it, it was 
uh, very suited to me and my scholarly interests and things like that. In fact, I'm, I think that is my nickname among some of the people, the librarian. I'm like, oh, yeah. great. Well, I, I, I thought it might, it might vibe with my sort of general Star Wars bookishness. Um, yes, yes, kinda, agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and maybe, maybe go around cons handing out little cards that say, that say shh on them. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that because you in know, Orvesh, obviously, that's you know. Jocasta new approved. Absolutely, right. absolutely. Right. Hey, Amy, do you cosplay at all? I do not. I do not have the talent or the skills to do that. I I do have a couple of wearable collections. I have uh -huh. a collection uh, of dresses my mother made for me of uh, Star Wars dresses and vintage materials that are the old yeah. sheets, the old Star Wars sheets, the old Star Wars drapes, those kinds of things. She's taken um, vintage material and made dresses out of. And I, I oh, have fantastic. quite a few Star Wars scarves, but but my big collection is Star Wars earrings. And I have uh, tried to balance the officially licensed earrings and the ones that are you know handmade at, you can find at mm. science fiction conventions and ones that, that talented friends of mine have made for me and such yeah. and i have a big enough collection that when i teach my star wars class i can wear a different pair of star wars earrings to each class so that's my that's... my very small little claim to <laughs> geekery and fantastic fantastic well, well so sometimes the unofficial stuff is where the good stuff is at and exactly. I, I, i'm always slightly disappointed that um sort of the the star wars cr creators on places like etsy tend to focus on jewelry for, for for ladies and there's not much going on in terms of stuff for guys trying to find like a really nice set of unusual star wars cufflinks you know mm. is quite tricky you know and I, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd love to have like sort of a you know maybe one that has like starlight beacon or the star mm -hmm. line the star cruiser logo or the batu logo or something and you can't find this stuff you can find the necklaces you can find the bracelets all of that mm -hmm. stuff finds its way to you know um jewelry um of, of other sorts but uh yeah not much out there for the discerning gentleman well you should you should don't let that stop you these sellers want to sell you things so sometimes they're <laughs> open to you know um requests like uh well yeah. i tried to get there was a, a seller that i love who sells patterns and she um sewing patterns and she i love her her jedi wear patterns and they've worked very well for me and so i was trying for 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 a long time i've been trying to get her to do an imperial officer pattern mm. so that i could make that but then i found an, another way to that but she was very open to it when i suggested it to her she said yeah that is that's something i had so make the request make the request yeah yeah it, it, it might be a commission job mm -hmm. um, yeah there you I'm go i'm conscious of the time guys and we haven't even touched on the book yet <laughs> and we must we must <laughs> talk about your book <laughs> Um, so obviously, uh, the primary reason for reaching out to you guys was, was because um, you've got this fantastic new book of essays coming out that, you, that you've edited together. Um, Publisher Vernon Press was, was kind enough to, to fire a, a review copy, a digital review copy my way. Um, so I've, I've had a chance. I've not finished. There are one or two that I haven't finished yet, but I've, I've read most of the book. Um, it's a super collection of essays from from, from different authors, uh, including some names that will definitely be familiar to, to fans of Star Wars publishing. I'm thinking folk like Amy Raikai. I, I always feel like I'm butchering Amy's surname. Is that right? Amy Raikai. 
Um, I say Rakow. Rakai. Is that how you say it, Amy Sturgis? Rikai. Yeah. Yes, Rakow. That's that's how I. So sorry, Amy. Sorry, Amy R. If you're if you're listening and we're still butchering your name, we apologize. <laughs> Uh, so, so folk like Amy and John Jackson Miller, who will be known to many Star Wars book fans um, for his Star Wars fiction. And, and of course, folk like Ian Dosher. Am I butchering Ian's surname now? Dosher. I think it's Desher. Desher. Ian Desher, uh, author of the Star Wars Shakespeare books. Um, he pops up there with a foreword uh, as well. Um, how did all of that come about? Um, great question. Yeah. So, um, I mentioned a conference that I heard that paper about disability in Star Wars a couple years ago at that same conference, which was the Southwest Popular American Culture Association online conference, um, in 2020, it was online because of the pandemic. Um, actually, I think it was 2021, February, 2021. I gave a 15 minute academic presentation on why midichlorians are really not that detestable in Star Wars, <laughs> as you do. And, uh, and it was based on, you know, a lot of my observations from, you know, taking Amy's courses and things. It, it had been a paper I had, I had written for the course. And it was kind of humorous. Um, and, uh, but I, I think it was fairly well argued. And I, I happened to get um, an email a couple of weeks later from an acquisitions editor at Vernon Press who said, hey, I heard your talk. Um, how would you feel about uh, editing a scholarly collection on uh, Star Wars and Star Trek because the panel that it was part of had covered both. So, so she suggested that I create a proposal for um, a book like that. And, and you said, well, let's do two. <laughs> actually, at that time, at that time, well, first I panic ran to Amy. <laughs> I was like, ah, <laughs> I want to do this, but I don't want to do this without you. <laughs> so <laughs> she was gracious enough to agree to help. And so biggest we put no out ever biggest no brainer ever, of course, <laughs> <laughs> it has proved to be fun. Um, we uh, we put out a call for papers uh, sh that summer, uh, early that summer, and then uh, we got so many submissions and they were really pretty evenly divided between Star Wars and Star Trek. There were a couple that kind of treated both, but they would have they, we saw them as kind of easy to ask the authors to say, can you kind of split these into two different papers? And mm -hmm. um, and so that's why we have a couple repeats in across the two books. So so and Vernon Press was delighted to have two titles um, instead of one. And so Amy, at one point, Amy says, well, I think it's twins. <laughs> <laughs> it's twins. So, so that's why we have these two, two volumes and each ended up with 10 chapters um, in, in, in each volume. So, yeah. So that's how it came Fantastic. about. Yeah. Do one of you maybe want to tell some of the folk listening what's in the book? What, what, what are we diving into here? Okay. Yeah. I'll start. Of course we have, you mentioned the forward by Ian Desher, um, which was lovely. Uh, and then we have an introduction by the two of us. And we have three main sections, and this is true of our Star Trek um, volume as well. And the first main section is um, exploring the series and films. So the first uh, chapter is by Amy Rakow, who you mentioned. She's um, author of many Star Wars nonfiction titles, such as mm -hmm. I Love You, I Know. And she was part of Team Timelines. Um, yeah. And she writes about Twi'leks and the evolution of Twi'leks in the Star Wars um, galaxy. Um, as 
you know, with a really great knowledge, diegetic knowledge, you know, of the world. But mm -hmm. then she she really also weaves in an argument that these are a bit of a emblem of the way Star Wars has treated the other, you know, um, yeah. be it women, be it, you know, uh, whoever is othered, you know, in the story. Yeah. And she shows how that has developed and how, you know, we've con we've gone from Ula, you know, in A Return of the Jedi to Harrison Dula, you know. Um, and yeah. so it's it's really been a, an amazing transformation. And so it's a great, a great chapter, very um, thorough in its research and knowledge of Star Star Wars. Yeah, I, I loved that. I um it, and I guess I had some I had a similar experience with, with many of the essays, but so scanning scanning through the table of contents you sort of think you go, I go you go into it with an idea of maybe what it is and you think okay well there can't be that much to say and suddenly you're like oh my goodness this is amazing you know they're, they're she really pulls that all together and uh, it's a real eye-opener I love yeah that. yeah right exactly like what you were saying before it really made me look at it in a different way um the next essay is by Vicky Terrelly, and I think I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, it's called Fixers, Tinkerers, and Makers, Artisans and Craftspeople in Disney's Star Wars. The minute I saw her proposed title, I was like, we want this one <laughs> because <laughs> I am also a maker and, and I love makers. Yeah. And I think that making um, brings such insight and especially um, to observe the way that making is so prized in in Star Wars by you know it's it's an activity of these heroic people and the way that it expresses their um, their commitment to rebellion and the way you know making and doing doing it yourself even in our um, capitalist late stage capitalist society I like throwing out that term just to make people nervous um, really really causes you know really is a way of fighting against you know you know things like planned obsolescence you know and yeah. um being able to do it yourself and be self-sufficient is a way of pushing back on our dependence on the big machine you know so um vicky's essay is really insightful there and then i guess in the in the context that we were just touching on um about the star wars makers on etsy you know there's such a community of makers in the fan community um mm -hmm. it was really fascinating to read a about making in Star Wars in universe and how that is sort of being held up and characters like the armorer from the Mandalorian, mm -hmm. etc., um, coming front and center, and, and that amazing sequence in the Book of Boba Fett where he crafts his gaffy stick—it's just beautiful. Um, yeah, an another fascinating essay. That again, I, I looked at it and thought, well, well, what can this teach me? And well, actually, it was amazing. And <laughs> you, you know, know what? Um what book it put on back onto my to reread list was Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> you know, it was like, yes. oh my gosh, yeah. I, to, I didn't ever, I remember loving that book as a young teenager and I had no memory of the element of making in it, but it must've made an impression on me because I love the book. So I have to, I have to go back and, and read Robinson Crusoe again because of her wonderful essay. Yeah, it's, it is, yeah. it's amazing. And, and the fact that she pointed out that there's so many women makers in Disney era Star Wars um, yeah. between Ray and Trace Martinez and, you know, um, just uh, uh, Pelimoto, one of my favorite characters, right? Oh, I love good. the attention the Book yeah. of Boba Fett in general and The Mandalorian gets in her in her essay. We were really pleased to have um, have be challenged the writers to bring their essays just as up to date as they possibly could. I mean, yeah. literally yeah. putting insertions in for Andor at the very last minute yeah. of this book. I mean, uh, you 
you got to draw a line somewhere, I guess. But uh, you, you, I guess you, you just got to hope that the book is due to drop in a sort of a, a relative uh, lull between big releases, you know? Right, exactly. And well, and not that there is that much anymore, although I think we're going to get one with no. these strikes, right? Um, yeah. But but yeah, you, you, you just, I guess you just have to hope that the way you've treated it is broad enough that it continues to apply and that and that Star Wars is consistent enough that your ideas will continue to be relevant to new material coming out. And then you get to write the follow-up essay, you know, to to apply those same ideas to this new property that's that's come out. Second, so. second edition. Second edition. Right, exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> so for know. the final essay in this first section of the book is um, the one I referred to earlier of Eloise Thompson Tremblay, who um, it's called The Dead Mom's Peril. Star Wars and the dispossession of the mother figure, which, um, to my knowledge, is the first is the first systematic look at mothers in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And um, boy, is it long overdue and needed. Um, it's devastating. It's it's a bit of a devastating essay, um, but it's not without hope, um, especially in the way we see some mothers portrayed in the very newest Star Wars, such as Marva Andor in um, in, yeah. in Andor. And then um, also Baru Lars. Oh, man, Baru. Who, killing it. Who knew Baru had a secret stash of rifles? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, right, but you're exactly. Right. These much more powerful, proactive uh, visions of motherhood and protective women. Yeah. And just, yeah, yeah. I, yeah long overdue um very much so so i'll pass the baton to amy to talk about the next section the second section is exploring the ideas and that one also has three essays and the first is by emily herself and so i, mm -hmm. I expect she's going to be talking about this more so i won't say too much but yeah yeah we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit 2187 not just a number in in star wars um I just want to say that this analysis of the sort of original and ongoing influence of Arthur Lipset and his film, uh, uh, 2187, it sounds like it's a niche topic, but what, <laughs> what it ends up doing is providing this key to unlocking symbols and themes and meaning across all of Star Wars. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to Emily talking about that some more. It's, it's a fantastic essay. So, uh, I'll, I'll just, Put a pin in that. The next one is uh, The Map in the Mirror, Reflections of Time, Self, and Salvation in Star Wars and Harry Potter by Katie McDaniel. And that's, we've already been talking about uh, Harry Potter here. <laughs> this is a, a fascinating analysis of how we can compare Harry Potter's experience in the Harry Potter novels with Rays in the sequel trilogy and in particular, how the metaphor of them seeing their own reflections while they are heroes in training. Harry with the mirror of Erised in, in Hogwarts and Ray with the cave mirrors on mm -hmm. Octu. It gives them self-knowledge and in effect provides them with a map. Uh, for becoming not only the heroes they need to be to defeat the dark, but also the heroes they need to be to help redeem the dark, which is, is really interesting. She's a historian who's done a lot of work with the long tradition of both mirrors and mirrors as maps in storytelling. And I think this gives us some great insights, not only into Ray and sort of uh, 
line, through lines of continuity in Ray's story, but also Kylo Ren as well yeah. in thinking about yeah. these sequel uh, trilogy films. So it's just, I think it's a delicious analysis. So it's just, it's great. It's great. And, and I will just plug, can I just interrupt a plug that Katie is also my co-host at Potterversity. So she is, she's a known entity to us and uh-huh. uh, she does consistently brilliant work of this caliber. And when she wanted to submit, we were like, ah, uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> please, please. And uh, speaking of, of things that made me see Star Wars in a completely different way, um, the next essay, the, the last essay in this second section is um, Sabak Fans Playable Representations of Star Wars Cultural Memory by Jennifer Russell Long. <sighs> Mind blown there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a great example of a work that takes not only the franchise seriously, but also the fans, right? So while yeah. the game of Sabak is played, you know, on over 10 uh, planets in Star Wars, more than 80 variations of the game we see in-universe, in the films and series and comic books and novels and all. Sabacc is also a game that you and I can play here in the real world. And Jennifer employs the study of cultural memes and a cultural selection of traveling stories to show, first of all, why fans are interested in playable representations of Star Wars games, right? Why they want to be playing the game they see played in universe and how that came about that you and I can play Sabacc. But also number two, what it means that both the communities we see in Star Wars stories and real life communities of fan players, how they, what it means that they converge to form literary cultural memories together. So her analysis basically has implications for how we understand culture, how we understand games, and how we understand how the two interact with each other. I just, I learned so much (laughs) and I really appreciate it. You know, this follows back off off the screen or off the page into our world. Yeah, it, it's it's always fascinating reading the, the essays that are diving in sort of the, the more transformative stuff about how right um, how people are interactively engaging with stuff like that. Um, I, I I haven't played Sabacc in real life yet, but it's something that I do want to do. Part of me sort of waiting for the inevitable technology advance where we can actually get the version where the card changes in your hand. Um, <laughs> I can, I want that in my life. Love it. I'm here for it. I, so, some weird variant on, on Sabacc. Um, anyway, sorry, I, I right. keep, I keep uh, digressing. No, 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 we love it. I mean, these are, yeah, these are essays that inspire a lot of conversation and a lot of, mm. you know, tangents. And, and, and yes. I, you know, and the biggest hope for an academic, I think, I, at least to me, is that somebody will want to respond to something that I said in an essay. Yeah, and so when that happens organically, we, we just love it. But We have one more section in the book, and that is exploring the multimedia storytelling. So it was kind of random when we were putting the table of contents together and organizing them by these different categories. We ended up with 
all our male writers at the in the last category, which I thought was so <laughs> weird and was totally not intentional. It was just it worked out that way. But that starts off with um, Aaron Masters writing about choices and consequences in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2. It's kind of an old game, but a very, yeah. very, very popular game, a beloved game. Very much so. Yeah, that that um, Aaron really uh, just does a really great analysis of the way um, it inverts the sort of Star Wars paradigm of light and dark through the different, not only the game's structure and the game's features and function, but through the characters, through the way choices are handled. Um, it, yeah. It's a great, you know, it's it, it's a great essay because. For me, who's not a gamer, and the, I will tell you the reason I'm not a gamer is because I know the minute I switch one of those games on, I will never stop doing anything but that. So I have to sort of guard myself. Yeah. So, But it helps <laughs> me to know what I'm missing, you know, in these games yeah. and what the games have to offer, both narratively, character-wise, and the, and the moral dilemmas and the, the, um, the story arcs that run through them. And that, that was really a great essay for me to spend a lot of time with because of... Yeah. of you know that hole in my life <laughs> yeah well if you ever do want to dive down that rabbit hole you could do worse than start with those knights of the old republic games oh the, the, you're absolutely right i mean those games combined the the two of them i was saying to amy off mic before we started recording it's about 70 plus hours of gameplay just to play mm -hmm. that through and with one version of the storyline mm -hmm. you know it's mm -hmm. a lot it's, it's a lot a of time investment. It's a lot yeah. of time. Yeah. I, yeah. So someday, someday retirement project. Uh, I mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then the next essay is called This is the Way, The Mandalorian and the Evolving Serial Medium by Paul Johnson, who is a film mm -hmm. scholar. He uh, just did a great um, look at the behind the scenes of The Mandalorian and the way that um, Disney has sort of reintroduce this notion of the serial medium um, with this new technology of the volume that that helps to be so immersive um, and has encouraged our own um, the audience's own immersion in the story through even through little th seemingly small facets like the way the show is released you know instead yeah. of dumping the whole season down for us to binge and then move on to the next thing it it you know teases out this material that has us on the edge of our seats you know and uh so it's it's a it's a really great um essay especially for people who are interested in the behind the scenes of it all and yeah it's a great essay and it's, it's one of those ones that you sort of you i was reading it and thinking why has nobody written about this before because it, it sort of seems it seems so obvious that obviously everybody knows at this point and lucas was very much inspired by sort of old serials that sort of the sort of serials that maybe you'd see in the cinema before the main feature that sort of thing and it would end on a cliffhanger all of that stuff the flash gordon stuff that he that, that lucas loved um and yeah we've come right we've almost come full circle right back mm -hmm. to actual serialized live action storytelling mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it was fascinating to, to to have someone then actually and someone with that film studies background to to dive into that right right yeah yeah paul just does a great job with that um the next two essays also look at kind of behind the scenes aspect of star wars uh star wars storytelling so um dr andrew higgins um uh goes through the language invention in in star mm -hmm. wars um he is a languages expert he has written on languages in tolkien and and in star trek 
And um, so he gives us this really wonderfully complete history of the invented languages of Star Wars. And to be honest, it's a little bit of a dicey story because there is some cultural appropriation that happens, cultural misappropriation, I would say, um, the methods used, you know, the method used is largely sound capture um, yeah. by the sort of father of Star Wars sound, which was Ben Burt. Um, but there were some problematic methods um, of the sound capture, especially with regard to bringing in um, folks who speak indigenous languages and and just kind of taking that and modifying it maybe um, and then applying it to say Ewoks or whatever. There yeah. was even an instance of a woman who was sort of, she wanted a little bit of vodka to tell her stories in her native language. And uh, so they were happy to supply that. She even goes nameless in the accounts. She's referred to as Grandma Vodka. And so so it's a dicey story. And a Andy really handles it very well. Um, but And he also shows how um, Star Wars language invention has really come to a different place and yeah. has a, a different approach now, in fact, involving um, for the Tuscan... Tuscan Raiders in Book of Boba Fett involving um, members of the deaf community. Um, Troy, I can't remember Troy's last name, but he was the kind of point person. He is an, uh, I think he's an Oscar winning actor, um, deaf actor. He came in and developed Tuscan Sign Language, TSL, um, based, not exactly based on American Sign Language, but based on their own culture. Um, and yeah. uh, so, so it's really a new a new era for Star Wars language invention and um Andy yeah. really captures all of that and more in his in his great chapter. fascinating essay because I guess Star Wars does have a slightly checkered history when it comes to um othering <laughs> and the Tuscan Raiders being a, a case in point you know um and there's problematic ethnic coding of aliens and and others throughout the history of Star Wars, um, but the Tuscan Raiders sort of stick out in 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 modern memory. I guess is one where maybe the process of rectifying the mistakes of the past is is most obvious uh, in the way that, that that they're more sympathetically portrayed now as sort of as as coded as indigenous peoples. Um, but it was fascinating to read from this perspective that the, the how the linguistics played into that as well. Um, that, that was definitely a new insight for me. Okay, and Amy gets to talk about our last essay because she is the she's our contact person with John. I think the the perfect ending note for uh, this anthology is "Expanding Universes: Star Wars and the Cultivation of Canon" by John Jackson Miller. Uh, and full disclosure, he is one of my favorite Star Wars writers. So I, yeah, I'm very excited about this, but. I've just finished reading for the first time his Knight Errant comic series. I don't know if you've read that one. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super, super stuff. I, I love his comics. Yeah. I, I, I could talk to you all day about the Knights of the Old Republic comic, uh, but, but we don't have time. <laughs> but you bring up a great point. He has this, this uniquely insightful position because he has written Star Wars comics. He's written Star Wars novels. He's written Star Wars during the period that we now call legends that is the before times he's written star wars in the new disney era canon era and so these you know 
on the ground personal experiences give him insights that that uh, a uniquely informed perspective here. And he's also written in other franchises like Star Trek. So not only does he see the pattern of how Star Wars tie-in works relate to Star Wars films and series, he also knows how that's similar to and different from the way other franchises structure their tie-in materials to their main storytelling. So it gives them a great deal of context and insider knowledge to unpack the whole idea of what we mean when we're talking about Star Wars canon in the first place. Yeah. And the patterns of Star Wars history, you know, that define how those tie-in materials like novels, comics, games as well, relate to the films and series and also to see how the disney era is a different one in attempts to coordinate the storytelling across the board from the way that was handled in earlier lucasfilm times so it's a a history it's an analysis of of this kind of storytelling and it's got the the wide angle lens in terms of its sweeping scope and it's also immediately relevant to what we as fans are encountering and consuming right now when we're trying to figure out you know uh classify in our own minds is this is this canon is this legends wait a minute did that come from legends and now it's being pulled forward and sort of recanonized right and i think it gives us a good uh big picture portrait of star wars storytelling there at the end it's a super essay and it's it's um very refreshing to see it coming to see some of that stuff coming from from someone like john jackson miller who has that unique perspective and to to have it's basically the history of star wars publishing in a sense right you know in a in a very concise well-written and insightful essay you know um it, it's, it's basically it, it's it's an idea for a podcast episode that i've had knocking around you know, since we started talking about doing the podcast, it's a, it's a conversation I want to have at some point, just looking at the entire history and the, the different relationships that the published material has had to the quote unquote, you know, big pieces of the films and the TV shows, you know. Um, so for anybody who's interested in, in the idea of canon and the history of Star Wars publishing, that's it, you know, the... If you, if you needed any other reason to buy this book, uh, and we basically you, you've covered how many essays are there? There are ten. Ten. Yeah. Yes. The, the, there are there are ten very good reasons to buy this book, um, but maybe folk listening to the Star Wars Book Community podcast might find John Jackson Miller the, the cherry on top. You know. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Absolutely super stuff. Now you both have obviously you were both named as editors on the book uh emily you have an essay in the book which amy's already mentioned i do want to talk to you about that um but amy you don't have an essay in there but what's the role of an editor like in this sort of situation what what's it like getting a bunch of different academics to to do stuff is it like herding cats or (laughs) (laughs) how does that work it's it, it was actually a remarkably harmonious experience because we're all so invested in the importance of star wars and and saying things about star wars so it was a it was joyful in the sense of getting to work with all of these people who have such interesting things to say um i will say uh in a sense 
Emily and I are like the force <laughs> in that we we seek balance in all things. And so, um, so we ended up with with these twin books, um, Star Trek essays exploring the final frontier and Star Wars essays exploring a galaxy far, far away. And so I did contribute an essay to the Star Trek book. Um, and then Emily contributed an essay here. So we sort of balance each other out. But in terms of the role of editor, the hardest part by far was choosing among the amazing uh, proposals we got, these abstracts, because I wanted to read literally every single one we got. I want to see what that essay looks like when it's done. So that was a challenge. But Emily and I are also very much on the same page in, in uh, uh, so many ways that uh, we, we were able quickly to, to pinpoint um, and balance. Part of the role of the editor here is also balancing what we wanted in the volume. And we agreed early on, yeah. we didn't want to have a theme beyond obviously Star Wars. We wanted to pick the best proposals we could get and then let those themes fall where they may. And, yeah. and we ended up with what we were hoping for, which is a balance of these big picture studies where people are, you know, using that wide angle lens and these, these close studies, the, the microscopic views that are also yeah. telling us so much about Star Wars. So a lot of what we did there was uh, around the feedback um, as we were getting rough drafts and revisions. Then the role, one of the things we kept in mind for both volumes is also thinking about accessibility. We wanted these essays to be very rigorous in a scholarly sense, but also very accessible to fans who are just lovers of Star Wars who don't know particularly the, the um, terminology or the lingo or the buzzwords yeah. of a given subfield in a given uh, a scholarly way. We wanted the, anyone who was interested in, in these works to be able to access them and have, um, you know, uh, uh, no barrier to entry there. Yeah, well, I mean, m mission accomplished from my perspective, oh. because as I said, good, good. I'm, I I'm many years out of academia, you know, I, I don't often have cause to pick up an academic book, but I, I will for Star Wars, but well, uh, I find it perfectly accessible. Um, each and every one of those essays, um, you, you know, you, you don't need to have a particular grounding in, in the particular field that, that the writer comes from. Um, it, it, it all just works. So, yeah. And, and without, without having sacrificed the scholarly rigor, I mean, you, you mentioned that I, I was sort of, I guess I was surprised. I don't know why I was surprised. Uh, I spoke to Chris Kemschel recently, uh, who, who mentioned that he'd actually peer reviewed one, one of the essays for the book, what? you know, and it sort of, it, it had never occurred to me that, for, that, that, that this stuff gets peer reviewed as That's part of the process. Oh boy, does it? Yes. <laughs> That's a whole other part of the, the editor's process is, for this is a, a Vernon Press, and it's also a, an industry-wide uh, practice for academic works that all of these works have to go through um, peer review and finding the expert whose expertise speaks to each of these works was a challenge, but it was exciting too, because we knew then if it passed peer review that, uh, which of course all of these did, um, that that the highest um, bar for that particular field was met by these works. Yeah. Um, but that's that's another behind the scenes thing you don't think about, you know, that that's what has to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. 
Well, and we don't, yeah. you know, peer review is supposed to be double blind, you know, in most cases, it's supposed to be double blind, which means the the contributor and the peer reviewer don't know who each other is after the fact it's a little eh, you know but uh yeah. but it, so it's but it, the so sad I part about chris it, i haven't got chris in no 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 mentioning. like i said after the fact it's like <laughs> eh, you know whatever um it's what's done is done you know but but i think yeah. that the sad part about that is that these peer reviewers are often so helpful most of the time are so very helpful. The, that's, you know, the best peer reviewers, that's what they're do. They're going to say, you know, it's not just a rubber stamp, yes or no. It's, it's, yeah, this is really good. And it'd be even better if these sources were acknowledged or these sources yeah. were worked into the argument and, and, uh, or, or did you think about this aspect of it? And should that be addressed in your essay? absolutely these peer reviewers helped make this book as good as it as it is and and i i wish yeah. i could shout their names to the the, the rooftops but <laughs> i will not in the interest of professionalism 100 percent, though that's it absolutely soon after the book came out i got the opportunity to peer review something and i was so proud and i took it so seriously i was like i had like pages and pages <laughs> okay maybe not pages and pages but i was just so happy because that's how you give back you know when you're a peer yeah. when you benefit from peer reviewing then you give it back by by being a conscientious peer reviewer yourself yeah absolutely one last thing I'd like to say about the editor process, because that's unique to these projects uh, and something I'm so grateful for uh, Vernon Press too, for, for their willingness to go with us on this. Um, we got to have some say in the covers by actually uh, approaching an artist we both really appreciate. That's Emily Austin. And she created original cover art for both of these volumes that that complement each other and that are original watercolor paintings and we're really thrilled with that because we wanted the love that we feel for this text to come through in the covers yeah and so yeah. Getting they're that they're they're beautiful they're beautiful I, i'll um I, i'll include images of the, the cover when we post this episode um on the social media posts that go along with it so folk can see uh but uh, for the star wars one is a beautiful painting of a like a planet and for the star trek one sort of nebulae and sort of a beautiful starscape absolutely gorgeous thank you so much so yeah there's a lot of behind the scenes things that that come together there um but it, it's been such a joy and i owe everything to emily for inviting me to be along on this adventure because it's been <laughs> fantastic Oh my gosh. Yes. No, really, I owe so much to Amy because if she hadn't joined me, I just don't think they'd, they'd be nearly as good. <laughs> they would well, have I mean, Emily, Emily, you are, um, Emily, you were pulling double duty really on, on the Star Wars one because you do obviously have your essay in there, uh, 2187, not just a number in Star Wars. Um, and I guess when I saw that in the contents table, I didn't quite know what to expect. And then I started reading it and I was reminded about this little slice of Star Wars prehistory that I, I'd known about, but had completely forgotten about. You know, I, I don't know whether I tripped across it in sort of Chris Taylor's book of sort of how Star Wars conquered the universe. Somewhere in my knowledge of Star Wars history and prehistory, this had come up and I'd just forgotten about it. So what can you tell folk about Arthur Lipset's short film 2187 uh, and how it influenced George Lucas and others? working on Star Wars? 
Yeah, you know, I probably ran into it also in Chris Taylor's book. Um, there is a little section where he talks about that. It was yeah. also mentioned in an episode of a great podcast called Force Material that I love and listen to um, a lot. Mm -hmm. So and they had a blog post on their on their site about it as well. But these are just a little short a blog post, a little section of a chapter, you know, and, but it really intrigued me, especially when I went and watched the film 2187. Um, I believe it was 1963 and it was produced It's a short film, less than 10 minutes produced by the national film board of Canada who had in the mid 20th century had a program of promoting the arts and promoting artistic creativity and, um, you know, national pride, I guess, in, in, um, yeah. Canada, Canada as, you know, a creator of arts um, through this film uh, film board. And so they had these experimental filmmakers making these short films. And Lu uh, Lipset was was one of these. And, and George Lucas came across this film as a film student. And he 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 dove down that rabbit hole. You know, he he watched it over a dozen times. So they say. And uh, and he was really, really struck by not just the form, but also the message of 2187. And so the form, Lipset was a scavenger. He he would cobble together other people's rejected film and audio to make his um, to make his films, which I think is really interesting, especially if you think about Ray and the character of Ray being a scavenger in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, uh, Lucas himself wore his his the things he was cobbling together on his sleeve, you know, between you know, Buck Rogers and the samurai films and, and the different things that influenced him, he, the Westerns, you know, he, he wore all that on his sleeve as a filmmaker as well, which I think is, um, and it's their kind of unlikely combination that sets both of the film, you know, both Lucas's film and 2187 uh, apart. Um, the audio of 2187 is essential to the story, right? It's an absolute, you know, it helps you interpret the images that you're seeing, right? And and that's also true of of Lucas and his films. There are these, and this is what Lucas will will say. People have asked him about it, and this is what he'll say: it's those dramatic cuts from dark to light, from some a peaceful image to a violent image from something that is restful to something that's disturbing something that's pastoral to something that's machinic you know and and these cuts these dramatic cuts really fascinated george lucas um and they're they're essential to to 2187 um but so that that's kind of the form part but the message part really fascinated lucas as well and the message of 2187 seems to be a dire warning about the sort of unchecked prolif proliferation of technology without the sufficient sort of moral oversight of its use mm -hmm. because of this loss of transcendence of this loss of transcendent experience in people's lives and 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 you know i mean you could say because of the loss of religion or the loss of spirituality but i choose that word transcendence because it's it's much broader you know it's it doesn't just apply to to religion or to a conception of god yeah. it can apply you know in lipset's film it even applies to nature you know a lot of the shots that he interweaves into this are nature shots and to go out and to understand and to have this feeling um, of being of awe and being of, uh, um, in nature and surrounded by things that are way bigger than you, right? And the connection that you have as a part of nature, right? You're not separate from it. You're you're part of it. And in the film, there's this little clip of of audio that talks about this force that connects all things and all people, and and that gives you this feeling of transcendence. 
And in a smack in the middle of this very disturbing, otherwise very disturbing film that talks about the way technology is encroaching upon us and, and, and really is a threat to our humanity. And so this really had such an impact on Lucas. Not only did it help him invent, you know, arguably the most, you know, memorable character in Star Wars, which is the Force, um, but it also helped him understand the stakes of his own of his own project, right? The the force in this transcendent human community of connection and care and concern versus the sort of individualization and the mechanization of all things to the point where people are yeah. even referred to as numbers, you know. Um, yes, and that's the, the dehumanization. Exactly, exactly the dehumanization, yeah. and they're they're just so significant and you would think that this obscure film you know i mean obviously lucas um gives the cell number 2187 to leia's cell at the on the death star the the number 2187 does come up in the film um it's one of these little borrowed audio clips that right. lips it edits in there right what's the context for that line well, it it's it appears right after that line about the force and this bucolic mm. sort of park scene where somebody's serenely sitting on a bench, and then you have this voice that comes in. You have these I can't remember what the uh, vi visual images are, but they're disturbing and machinic. And you have this voice that says, "Well, you know," and this person walks up and you say, "Your number is twenty one eighty seven, isn't it?" And boy, does that person really a uh, smile, you know? And there's this weird hesitation before they say smile because it's this I implication that not only is society moving in this direction of giving everyone numbers instead of names and numbers instead of identities you know but that we should be happy about it that this is yeah. really a much more efficient way of living and therefore you know becoming a number becoming just a number should make you smile right and and this i mean this is you know um <laughs> right this is democracy this is you know um human connection breaking down to thunderous applause Right. And so yeah. you see this yeah. as a long term concern of George Lucas in his filmmaking, but you don't oh, yeah. just see it stop there. Right. You see it continue in those opening scenes from The Force Awakens when we meet FN 2187. You know, <laughs> we know that something is going to be projected into these films that was a, a central, central concern of the originals and yeah. the prequels. Yeah. I mean, I guess Lucas Lucas was very interested in this idea of of people getting numbers. I mean, THX one one three eight. You know, yes. his his right. his first feature. I guess he he did the student film version of it, then then managed to convince I guess Coppola to give him enough money to turn the thing into a proper film. Right, um, again, and that was that a direct film... reference to twenty one eighty. I mean, he he couldn't use the the yeah. title twenty one eighty seven for his film that was already taken. <laughs> you know, so he used yeah. eleven thirty eight THX eleven thirty eight, but that he wanted yeah. to create that same um, statement, that same you know vision for his film that he had seen in Arthur Lipset's film, very much related. And it's funny because people, so I I did a, a Star Wars trivia night with my. Five of First, my local garrison recently, um, uh, we stomped. I'll just say that. We totally uh -huh. stomped. It was kind of unfair. But um, we were sitting there, and the third, the final round was like the hardest. Everything else had been really easy, and we got 100%, 100%. Then we got to the final round. It was getting a little So the first question in the final round was, what was the cell number of Leia's cell on the first Death Star? And I'm with all these mega nerds, right? 
and they all stop and look at each other. I mean, these are people who had just answered the question, what are the odds of successfully navigating an asteroid field? <laughs> they had answered that. They had written that number down yeah. exactly because they have the film memorized. But they were like looking at each other like, oh, no. And I and I looked at the woman who was writing the answers and I just tapped it like, come on, you know, you know. And she and she writes mm. 11, 1138 or 1183 or whatever it is. Um, and I was like, I, I no. Have I have to put my hand up there because I was at a trivia night myself um, in the last three months. The same question, and I could not bring the number twenty one eighty seven to mind. And I wasn't there for we, you. We, we, we ended up plumping for eleven thirty eight because we couldn't think of it, and we're like, we know it's not right, but for some reason twenty one eighty seven just would not come to was mind. This, so, we'll see. Now it will. Um, now your it will. friend has all my sympathy. Yeah, that's right. Well, and then three questions later. The question was, what is Finn's stormtrooper designation? And they looked at, they had did the same thing. They all looked around the table. And I was mm. like, it's the same as that one. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, I knew, I knew that much. I was saying to everybody, no, it's the same as Finn's number. It's got to be that. Yeah. But I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. So, so, you know, that's my goal, you know, in writing the chapter is to get more people to understand because Lipset was a marginal figure. I mean, he died by suicide yeah. just shy of his, yeah. I think just shy of his 50th birthday. I, he, he suffered from PTSD, depression, all kinds of different anxiety disorders. I mean, he, he was really a marginal figure and yet he contributed something so important, so many important things to Star Wars. And he and, continues, and you know. Piece, an enormous piece of the right. thematic puzzle that is Star Wars, this man versus machine. It's Oh my gosh. It's Darth Vader. It's, yeah. It's all of that. It's know? everything from Darth Vader to the Narkeena 5 arc of Andor. You yeah. know, I mean, this is to be on program, you know, is to be on program, right? You are being yeah. programmed as an individual who's completely vulnerable and you have no choice but to comply with the machine that is the Empire, you know, and, and it's, yeah. Amazing. And there, there's even actually a visual reference to 2187 in, in Narkeena 5.2 when Andor's tab pops up. It's 2189, but uh, but then you have this proliferation yeah. of sevens in the arc as well, the number seven. Um, that yes. really makes a statement. Yeah. But the, the, the visuals of that arc in Andor as well, it's probably the closest that Star Wars has come to looking like THX 1138, oh, yes. I think. You know, just the the stark white sterile environments. You know, goes right back to Lucas's first film and his love, his fascination mm -hmm. with these. That's ideas. a great point. That's a great point. That that needed to be a footnote in my chapter. Need that. Need that second, second edition. edition. I think second edition. <laughs> um, I, I'm really conscious of the time, guys. I can't believe we've been talking for this long. It's, it's how we roll, Johnny. It's um, how we roll. Uh huh. Um, if if you've got a few more moments, I'd love to talk to you about Star Wars books. Brilliant. I'm get I'm, I'm getting nods. Okay, so let let's have a little a quick chat about Star Wars books. Do you read the sort of the, the books and the comics? Um, Amy, what about you? Yes, yes, I have read the Star Wars books and comics since I could read quite <laughs> quite literally. I have some of the first picture books from the original trilogy oh, wow. that I literally just about loved to pieces. I mean, there is like mm -hmm. duct tape involved. 
and uh, I've been reading every now and again, I see some of that stuff cropping up on Instagram. So yeah. someone posts a photo of a very well loved Ewok picture book or something. And it'll be something that I've never seen before, even though I was that era. I'm like, Oh, my goodness, these things are artifacts, you know, it belongs in a museum. <laughs> they, beautiful. They're fantastic. And the the uh, cassette tapes read along stories with the with the oh, books. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Um, Android adventures. Yeah, just just uh, uh, amazing. So, and I've also been reading fan fiction since my teens, since mm -hmm. I discovered it. But uh, my favorites, may I? May I give you a few of my? Mm -hmm. um, Please do. So, so from Legends, from the pre-Disney era, one of my favorite series is the Jedi Apprentice series, following Obi Wan's apprenticeship with Qui Gon Jinn. Um, they, Jude Watson's it's what 19 books or 20 it's quite it's quite a lot yes 18 uh books and then two special editions and yes. um, Dave Wolverton yeah. wrote the first one and all the rest were Jude Watson and they were yeah. fantastic and uh YA series but very satisfying for the adult reader too I was uh yeah. adult when I read them and I, I loved them I loved anything Phantom Menace era and anything about Qui-Gon Jinn and uh, I've already mentioned John Jackson Miller is one of my favorite authors. I loved his Kenobi from the Legends era. Uh, again, one so of the first good. steps toward making the Tuscans uh, much more three-dimensional yeah. and giving respect there to their culture. Very I, much so, with that sort of very sympathetic uh, matriarch. Yeah. It's amazing. But it's actually a bit of a revelation partway through that, oh, she's she's female you know that right. you, you kind of I'm, maybe that was me walking into it with my set of male presumptions and but but uh i certainly I, it, it wasn't obvious to me at all um there was a matriarch and then at a point in the story it was revealed and fantastic and it kind of it resonates with what happens in the book of Boba Fett as well with the, the female Tuscan Raider. Who's like the, the great warrior of the clan, you know? Absolutely. And again, I, 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 my bad, I didn't read that character as female at all when she first appeared on screen in the first episode, I think, you know, and afterwards I could, I could see it, you know, the, the, the they give her the silhouette. So the, the headdress falls down almost, it looks in silhouette like long hair. I can see it now, but on first blush, it's the, Oh, T Tuscan's dressed slightly differently. You know, I also uh, love in in terms of the present canon, the Disney era canon, his introduction for us to Hera and Kanan before Rebels even began, A New Dawn. That's another great novel mm. that I really enjoyed. Um, my I, I find Kanan, I, I find Kanan a little bit creepy in that one. I think, I think. It sets off this this journey for him that it yeah. really impacted my. I, I read the, the novel before I watched the series, and it it okay. it had an impact for me on how I saw how far he was coming, and, and also how yeah. how far Hera's yeah. influence had had worked on him. Oh, I mean, she's cleaned that boy all up. <laughs> I mean, he's. <laughs> He's much better behaved right. he, uh, on the show. Right. I mean, part of that, I guess, it's a kids' show, but. Um... He, he's very much got an eye for the ladies in that novel, you know, and, he and he's not taking no for an answer from Hera either. And <laughs> she has made it suitable for children. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Rebels. No, 
you're you're right. He was a he was a problematic mess when we when we find yeah. it there. You're, you're yeah. quite right yeah. on that. Um, but I mean, but I guess that that's on point and on character. I mean, he's he he. I guess he's a guy who's been brought up uh, sort of as a teenage monk and sort of left out and you know had to go out into the world. Right. He doesn't have great social skills. He's you and know also yeah. sort of. I'd I'd be a mess too. <laughs> I'd, I'd I'd be a mess drinking my troubles away on some random mining colony, you know. I get it. And and projecting the most anti Jedi persona you possibly could, right? Oh, Nobody's going to guess yeah. you're running from you know Order sixty six there if uh, if you're acting the way you know bad behavior yeah. there. Uh, it's, yeah, it's good cover. Exactly, but no, I I do agree with you there. I adore anything related to Rogue One. So, um, mm. so in terms of uh, current eras, I really love and and appreciate what uh, what was accomplished in Greg Rucka's Guardians of the Wills, and the manga adaptation so of that. Both yeah. brilliant, and going much further into the idea of what an occupied place is like, and what that means for people on the ground living under occupation and what their options for resistance or just survival resilience are yeah. there and i should also then mention um james lucino's catalyst and beth revis's rebel rising as other novels that i really liked in their support of the rogue one story and particularly catalyst yeah. the way it gives us more sense of um what's represented symbolically by Galen Urso and this idea of, of science being weaponized by the state and yeah. by the power. So all that's, uh, that's great stuff. And if I could give a really quick shout out um, to two of my favorite science fiction authors who have then in mm. fact gone on to write Star Wars. Um, and they have also spoken to my Star Wars classes about their novels. John Jackson Miller did that with A New Dawn and he was fantastic. Um, but, but of course, he also has a long history of writing with Star Wars. Ken Liu, whose uh, novels and collections are just yes. instabized for me. Whatever the man writes, I'm going to be reading it. Um, he wrote this beautiful multi-layered The Legends of Luke Skywalker that yeah. works on so many different, you know, uh, uh, levels, uh, and metaphor and symbols and just beautiful. And it doesn't have to be factual to be true right and indeed i i love that it's, uh, it, it's sort of oh, it's so playful with the idea of canon oh. you know so it's sort of it's framed as a, a bunch largely of children or teenagers telling each other stories while they're on board this freighter of some sort on the way to canto bite so it's kind of loosely a, a lead into the last jedi it was published i think as part of the journey to the last jedi oh. um but the stories that they tell are all one way or another tales about Luke Skywalker with varying degrees of sort of faithfulness to the story we know, um, but, but equally then giving us little fascinating glimpses of the sorts of things that Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight slash Jedi Master might have been up to mm -hmm. in the years in between The Return of the Jedi and, and the sequel trilogy. Um, really, really interesting book, and, and some lovely whimsy in there as well. Absolutely, and and some some really deep 
reframing of how we might consider the force, how different creatures, yeah. might, uh, different different beings from different backgrounds might consider the force and these little morality yeah. tales, very, very, you know, Canterbury Tales like uh, in the yeah. sense that you've got these little yeah. morality uh, stories playing out. Everyone's going to share their own and you're not quite sure if this is a if this is history or this is being made up on the spot or somewhere in between, but it mm. doesn't really matter for the purpose of the book. And the other author is uh, Rebecca Roanhorse, with whom I've had the great honor of collaborating on another science fiction project. She wrote this uplifting Star Wars novel, Resistance uh, Reborn, leading yeah. up to the very final, um, you know, uh, uh, saga film, um, Skywalker saga film. And she spoke to my graduate students, Ken Liu spoke to my undergraduates, um, seeing both of them and John Jackson Miller, how generous they were with my students at talking about these particular novels meant a lot to me too. And so I wanted to just, given that you gave me the opportunity to go off on this <laughs> over a long tangent, I apologize, but it, it, it said a lot to me about them as yeah. storytellers as well. Yeah. All right. Rebecca's novel, Resistance Reborn, comes up time and time again when we're talking to folk on this podcast. Uh, it, it's a linchpin novel in in the post-Return of the Jedi slash sequel trilogy yes. world. Um, it's drawing together so much stuff. Uh, that she's bringing together characters and storylines from video games, from comics, from other novels, from the movies, and acknowledging them all as sort of valid and worthy of inclusion, but weaving them into a really excellent story as well that's paving the way to what was then the next film um to come out um fantastic book absolutely essential to if folk are interested in the sequel trilogy and the post return of the jedi um, era at all um one possibly one of the most important books i think in the canon to read yeah you know and and giving also leia the opportunity to mentor poe dameron um, in that kind of crucial moment there also provides her this opportunity to kind of restate some of the main uh, themes of Star Wars in general. I mean, it, it's, it's a beautiful distillation of a whole lot of different storytelling there because you're, you're yeah. reemphasizing these shared values going into a moment that looks very, very bleak. And that, that way she articulates that hope, I think, is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful book, beautiful book. Emily, what about you? Well, Amy's already mentioned many of my same favorites, so I can skip over those. I will say um, one she didn't mention that's my favorite EU or Legends um, book is a diegetic nonfiction book called The Jedi Path, Manual for Students of the Force. Oh, it's lovely. This is a, a scriptural text to me. And mm -hmm. so I have drawn on it um, in my own imaginings of the force. And I know some of the filmmakers have drawn on it as well. Like yeah. uh, I know Ryan Johnson drew on it to uh, conceive of the idea of Luke projecting his image across uh, space, uh, very far across space to mm. um, as a, an imprint of the force. Um, so love that Kenobi. Uh, you know, one book I really, that was, has been really important to me and has really stuck with me is Darth Plagueis. Um, mm. and, uh, the, uh, James Luceno Luce, yeah. and Luceno, Luceno, um, sorry, James, um, great. Uh, yeah. I was being a, such an attack of the clones fan. I, I've always wrestled with like, okay, who, 
bankrolled this army. You know, like what mm. I get, I get that you know how it all got set up, sort of. But but who paid for this all? You know, and yeah. I the the Darth Plagueis novel really goes a long way to helping me understand how that might have unfurled. Um, yeah, it's it's a great work of sort of almost joining the dots of the, there's so much EU lore that the author uh, ties together. Um, so from, from little sort of obscure snippets of story from a comic or um, a story element over here, he kind of weaves it all together as part of Darth Plagueis and Darth Sidious's journey. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of it, it, it sort of brings together almost all of the pre prequel trilogy EU at that point, um, other than sort of the High Republic stuff, uh, and sort of ties it all up in a, in a really excellent novel. Really, really very, right. very enjoyable in a memorable story, right? It's almost like the children of Hurin of Tolkien's work. Mm. You know, for for me, the children of Hurin was like, I get the Silmarillion now. Like I get what was happening <laughs> here. And so there's something yeah. that's a little less complicated with Star Wars, but but yeah, but there's there's an element of it that's kind of gluing these concepts together for the reader, you know, that that really works. Um, I have a 12 year old son who has been on this Star Wars journey with me since 2015 when he was four um and he and i have enjoyed many star wars books together but probably one of our favorite picture books is bb8 on the run by drew daywalt and gosh that book i mean you want to see me well up uh that book just the whole constant theme of helping and helping and how it's not paying off for bb8 he's helping people but it's just not paying off for him he keeps getting into these situations until finally he's trapped by a tito and you know he's trying to get back to where he needs to be and all of a sudden ray appears to save him yeah i i salute your son and his resilience because i think my son always found that book a little terrifying it's a bit dark even the 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 art is quite oppressive in in places and sort of quite scary Mm -hmm. for little bb8 is not mm-hmm. in a good place through much of that book, yeah. you know? why does anybody want to go back to jakku i mean you know finn's got it yeah. he's he's got it why yeah. you want to go to this place it's yeah. not good it's not a good place for bb8 either until and then in the last page you know and it's just sets ray up to be the hero that she is and and i she doesn't even say anything you know but she just yeah. she's just there for bb8 yeah. and she she's able to be the hero so i love i love that um book um lost stars and bloodline by Claudia Gray are are favorites of mine, you know. I love I love a lot of Claudia Gray's yeah. books. Um, there was a comic series several years ago um, called Obi Wan and Anakin that I yes. just devoured. And I'm not somebody who rushes to the comic store to get a particular title on a release date, but I was yeah. for that series because I'm very very interested, as I've said, in that relationship. And so um, I'm trying to keep up with the High Republic books. It's not working. Um, I do enjoy them. Um, this, I think they're a little hit or miss sometimes, but um, but I do. I have enjoyed them. I am jo- enjoying the story and the characters. But like I said, I'm a little behind on that. But you mentioned Padawan by Kirsten White mm-hmm. earlier, and that I really enjoyed. I kind of was surprised. You know, I, I I'm gonna not gonna lie. I bought it for the cover because the cover is just the most gorgeous image of a teenaged obi-wan kenobi yeah. that i've i was just these startlingly blue eyes and um really wonderful as if obi teenage obi-wan was in rebels it's almost that sort of style yeah. you know of yeah. the the animation and but i was surprised at how much i enjoyed the story um and 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 the characters too i, th- I thought there were some very very believable um characters and i loved the way that it kind of tied in with the high republic just to, 
an itsy bit little teeny um, bit just a little teeny yeah yeah and yeah. Uh, I, I i think that they also they shoehorned in a nice little bit of preemptive continuity fix in there as well with um uh, they established in that novel that Count Dooku was quite welcome at the Jedi Temple and was, mm -hmm. was not would would be sort of maybe not if not a regular fixture sort of not not remarkable to see him around and sort of question right. his presence, um, right? Because then a few months later, I think we got that Tales of the Jedi animation, which has Dooku swanning around the corridors, right. uh -huh. deleting files from the library. Yeah, you know, at, <laughs> yeah, at answering that, that question at, at, at a time that the canon had already established that maybe he wasn't, he shouldn't have been a Jedi Master anymore. So I guess they right. kind of they kind of they preempted the online howls in in Padawan by just just making just yeah, and Dooku was knocking around there too. Right. Yeah, we see him yeah. around here sometimes. Yeah, yeah. No, that you're right. That's that is very clever. I didn't think about that, but uh, in the light of Tales of the Jedi, but uh, yeah. Yeah, super, super. Guys, I'm really conscious of the time, and I, I there's there's so much more that I'd love to talk to you about. Um, but we probably should wrap it up and um let let you guys get on with with your day. Um, thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you both. Um, I'm as I say, I I love. The, the the book of essays uh, star wars essays exploring the galaxy far far away i've got a couple more of essays to read so i've still got a few more treats in store for me that i'm very much looking forward to finishing up um where can folk find you two if, if you don't mind being found online emily Yes, absolutely. No, I don't mind. And, and let me just say, it's just been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Um, and it's, you know, this book is still new. So we're, we're, it's new to talk to people who've read it. <laughs> so yeah. and not just heard us blather on about it. Um, so it's wonderful <laughs> to to speak to you and to hear your feedback about it. Um, you can find me online at that place that now I think goes by 10. I want to say it's 10. Uh, oh yeah, my the, the, the Roman numeral ten. Ten, yeah. right? Exactly. My yeah. handle there is the at, at EKC Strand, um, and I the rest of what I do online is basically post uh, cat and kid pictures, sometimes costume pictures, but not too many of those. I'll I'll post some of those on Twitter too. But I also have a website. I'm trying to kind of funnel everything to my website, which is just emilystrand.com, and I have a blog uh, attached to the website as well. Super. And what about you, Amy? I would like to add my thanks. This has been such a delight, and I'm so grateful to you for the opportunity to talk uh, with you today. Oh, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. I'm amyhsturgis.com, and uh, you go there and you can find my socials. I'm most active in terms of uh, social media in the Fediverse on Mastodon, which I have really come to enjoy quite a bit trying to leave the place we'll call 10. And uh, I, I also have a, a Tumblr and I have a blog and there are links to all of that there on my website. And I uh, blog that also goes to my Goodreads author page and such. And also on my website is a section on podcasting and that has my 15 years of looking back on genre history on uh, <laughs> Starship Sofa uh, indexed according to topic with links so if anyone's interested for example in the star wars content there they can find all that on my website too so if you go to my website you can find me anywhere online and that's amyhsturgis.com fantastic that's where i find you amy i found you on your website fantastic thank you i'm so glad so you, you did go. 
<laughs> it works. It works. Um, and of course, Star Wars Essays Exploring a Galaxy Far, Far Away is available now from Vernon Press. Um, the, although you, you're still ramping up to the official launch. I think you're having some launch parties coming up soon. We yeah. are. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, September 9 and 10, we have some virtual mm -hmm. events. So if folks go to my website or my Twitter feed, um, 10 feed, excuse me, 10 feed, um, you will see information about those events. They are um, sponsored by the digital. Oh, Amy, help me. Digital Cultural Studies Cooperative. Digital Cultural Studies Cooperative. Yes. And then on uh, Sunday, the, so that that's the official book launch on the 9th. And then uh, on the 10th, uh, we're also having an event uh, sponsored by Signum University, but everyone is invited to both and they are online and free. Fantastic. Uh, subject to time differences, I will be there. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We tried to make them international. Yeah, yeah. I, ha I had a quick look and it looked like it was sensible. So <laughs> I think I, I think I should be able to make it. Um, Fantastic. Uh, as usual, uh, folks, you can find me online as at Journals of the Wills. Uh, that's Journals with an S and Wills with an H on Instagram or threads. Uh, and as at Journals Wills on the aforementioned 10 web <laughs> platform. Um, the website formerly known as Twitter. Uh, and of course, you can reach out to the podcast team on all the usual social media channels you're looking for at SWBC podcast. Uh, the, the Star Wars Book Community podcast will be back later this week with new episodes of both Canon in 15 Minutes and either Legends in 15 Minutes or Legends Library, depending on whether or not we've taken the decision to rebrand that subseries or not. We can't do it in 15 minutes, guys. This, this is this is the problem. Uh, we're we're regularly turning in forty five minute long episodes of Legends in fifteen minutes. So I think we we need to, I think we need to pull the trigger on, on a rebrand on that one. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, it, it's a goodbye from our very special guests today, Amy H Sturgis. Goodbye. Thank you so much again. This has been wonderful. And it's a goodbye from Emily Strand. Thanks so much, and may the force be with you. Thank you, Emily. And it's a goodbye from me. I'm Johnny Maynard. You are wonderful for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. Mm -hmm.